Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Thursday, everybody. Hope your week's winding down well. Mine has been uh, really full, really solid. Got a lot of rest. I was talking about how I needed that. I was starting to feel a lot of burnout. So I kind of cut back my hours and really tried to center rest and pleasure and for me, it's the very simple things. I think when I use those concepts, people sometimes might think something extravagant, but often for me, that means sleeping in, reading, taking a bath, all things that are really about slowing down my nervous system, which when we're constantly focused and working or busy or stressed or carrying anxiety, even if it's a positive anxiety, excitement, it can really wear down our nervous system. And what requ- what is required for healing is just doing things that are still or slow or soothing, or don't require a lot of thought or effort, things that don't have any, you know, goal or structure attached to them. So you're not looking at the time, you're not working towards anything. That's what we really need to soothe our nervous system. And listening to what I just said, if you track your day, often we don't allow a lot of spaces for that. We wake up, hit the ground running, and then some people literally come home, you know, cook dinner and then crash right into bed. And sleep is so important. It's so restorative. If anything, if I had to give one tip to help everyone improve their lives, but more importantly, their mental health, I'd say sleep, 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 sleep. But uh, when we talk about things like meditation, that is a non-sleep-based form of resting our nervous system. But again, meditation, I use that in the most expansive way. It doesn't have to be sitting in the lotus position in a you know Eastern-based visual or metaphor, but it can be, like I said, taking a bath, taking a walk, uh, wandering around your local town or city reading something soothing, um, anything that's a right brain activity. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be sitting. Like I, I'm not a fan of sitting meditation. It doesn't naturally work well with just who I am and how I am. And it's kind of like when we talk about fitness, you want to find something that really matches who you are and how you like to move and what feels good in your body and meditation and restfulness are the same way. Um, I would say that it's about <clears throat> intuitive movement, right? So not everyone wants to do yoga or maybe they instead they'd rather do Pilates. Some people like myself love weight training. I love throwing around heavy weights. So I love going to gyms. So it's about finding the right brain, uh, nervous system, soothing activities that work for you. And there's so many different things. I've also come to really find beauty in working with plants, which was something I was raised with because my mom was very much into that. But this time you know, I've gotten a lot of plants and I've learned about them and I, you know, sitting there repotting them and watering them and placing them. And like I said, my books. So anyway, if your week has been full of a lot of stress and overwhelm, try to center this weekend with 
anywhere from 20 minutes to as many hours as you can find to just soothe that nervous system. And remember, when we talk about video games or watching television, that can be a form of self-care, but that also can be hyper-stimulating. So the material that you're watching, you have to pay attention to how it makes you feel. I love horror movies. That is absolutely not something that's gonna soothe my nervous system, right? That's gonna keep me activated and on edge. It, it, it is pleasant for me, it feels good, it's part of my self-care, but again, I need to find things that rest my nervous system. So video games, horror movies, and and other things, even some music might not be that way, but uh, good old K-Rock um, uh, on-air host, Nicole Alvarez, love her. She was on our show, I'm Listening Live, and she was talking about how she uses music. And she was basically saying without directly saying, because she wasn't using this terminology, but that it's very soothing for her nervous system. For her, it's meditative, it's very right brain. And I and I agree and I love that. I've, I've lied on my floor before, laid there and played music and just closed my eyes and I can feel my body slowing down, my nervous system matching the rhythm of the music. And that's where I love the idea of using music to help bring us into a mood, out of a mood, drop down deeper. I also had a week where I, I, I had a night where I was crying a lot. I was watching some things that were very beautifully triggering and reminding me of um, some past events. And I wound up just lying there and playing some music and it allowed me to drop in deeper. And I spent time with that grief and that loss. Cause again, as we talked about the other day, grief and loss isn't something to get away from or to fix. If it's often something to let uh, be kind of carried with us and we're a companion to it. So just really center that this weekend. Again, um, asking yourself, what self-care am I gonna do this weekend? What am I gonna do this weekend that's centered in joy and pleasure? And then also what am I gonna do that's really gonna rest my nervous system? And sometimes you can find something that covers all three of those things. Other times, maybe you have to kind of space it out and it's different things that meet those different needs. So I love that, you know, so really just kind of center your weekend in that. Um, Also, just before we, you know, end this segment, I wanted to just give a high five to a lot of the airlines. I'm really proud of them. They're stepping up their game. So Southwest Airlines and American Airlines have tightened their mask requirements even more. And basically they're ending all exceptions, which I love because there's a lot of BS going on. And basically they're saying that, you know, they're following the advice of the uh, Center for Disease Control and starting, I think it was like today, American Airlines and Southwest will require all customers, every single one over the age of two to wear coverings on board and at the airport. Um, No, no exemptions. And Delta, they came out saying they've banned thus far over 100 people from flying because they refuse to wear a mask. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. It's the new normal, you know, protecting lives, saving lives. All right, y'all, we got a great show planned for you. Question of the night's up on our Loveline IG page and the story. So weigh in on that. We'll be doing some DMs. We're going to be talking about COVID and mental health. So stick around for that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, and now we're going to our first guest, Dr. Jen Wider. How are you? I'm hanging in there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> You're not hiding under the bed yet, huh? Surface for my bunker for this. <laughs> I know. Well, let's talk about kids in school. I wanted to read a couple quotes that I have and kind of get your thoughts on this. Um, so one of them is, this came out of the White House and some of the Republicans in response to their thoughts on reopening the schools. And they said that it's in the children's best interest because they're citing the risk if they don't go back to school around their the children's uh, emotional well-being, their social development, their nutritional health, and their academic achievements. Um, when I read that list, my thought was that can all happen at home and what I right. thought was in a far safer environment. Please weigh in on that. Um, this, this is a little bit of a tricky situation, which for some kids may pose some challenges, Chris. One of the things that we have to think about, and I definitely – 
am along the lines with what you believe. Let me state that to start with. But one thing that we have to remember is that there are a multitude of students that receive their nutritional balance and their food fr directly from the schools. And those are high-risk kids and maybe in impoverished areas across this country that we really need to think about as we're moving forward to try to put these plans in place to get children back to school. Having said that, you know, there is a, it's an argument to be made about the mental health and the unintended consequences that this pandemic and shutdown has been causing, especially among our children, right? So if you're looking at the numbers of depression and anxiety and stress and stress-related illnesses that we see not only among our grade school kids and our high schoolers and, and young adults, but also among the adult population, those are issues, as you mentioned, that should be addressed, whether or not they're participating in person in a classroom or whether they're going online. And and I, and let's start with your first point, because I, I agree with that. I was looking at some of the videos of some of the schools preparing. And my thought yeah. was what you said about some of the classism or racism in that they were putting up plastic dividers. Um, they were moving the desks around. They had cleaning products. And my thought was not every school is going to be able to afford those precautions. But yet those are the videos that they were showing on the news. You know, and this, and this is the frustrating part of this, because I think we've seen such a lack of universal and federal guidelines in place within this nation to bring us back into our schools, right? So you would think, an average person would think that the federal department of education or even the state departments of education have had an inordinate amount of time, really, to think of this plan. Many schools have been out since March or April. So there are lots of different permutations of what could potentially be if you're looking at schools in California where their numbers are a bit higher than they are on the East Coast. These are things that we need to take into consideration. In addition, if a school is rural or suburban or urban, there are different types of constraints and challenges to face. But those are issues that we should have federal guidance for. There should be money for all schools to get back, you know, with, with, with some sort of protocol about how to get our students back into the school safely and how to protect our teachers as well. And that's just lacking. And also, let's talk about this for a second, just the, the numbers and the data that we're supposed to be using to make assessments and analyze, that is now not going to be going through the CDC. That will be going directly to the White House. So what impact do you have that seeing? What impact do you think that will have on us? Well, that's that's a that's a major issue. And I saw in the news that they reversed that. I may be off, Chris, that okay. they reversed it again. Um, but cutting the CDC off at the knees is not the wise thing to do right now in the middle of a pandemic. You know, putting a sense of ambiguity and confusion into the American public about our main public health organization, national organization, is, is just moronic in my, in my standpoint. And, you know, from my standpoint, in addition to the fact that Fauci has been, Dr. Fauci has been undermined on a daily basis by many representatives in the White House, including the president. So th this kind of stuff is the stuff that is leading to our issues in this country. Other countries look at us and just can't believe that we are so politicized and polarized by even wearing a mask has become a political situation for us in this country, whereas it really is a measure of public health for everybody, no matter what party you ascribe to or if you don't ascribe to a party. Yeah. Um, and the challenges that we're facing as this nation, Chris, which is which is 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 a bummer as far as I can am concerned, because you know, getting our schools back up and running is incredibly challenging. We'll be right back with Dr. Jen Wider to talk about kids, school, and COVID. Dr. Jen Wider, let's look at some, let's look at a, um, I guess this isn't a stat, this is a, a kind of a soundbite. And in the debate about opening schools, it was pointed out that children under 10 
are less likely to transmit COVID, whereas youth ages 10 to 19 would spread at about the same rate as adults. Now, they're not talking about having different protocol for high school versus grade schools. So what are we to make of this information? So, you know, if you look at some of the towns in the different states, and again, it's very difficult for us to know universally what these plans are, right? So in my town, there are different protocols that they're using. There are three separate plans. One is to go online completely. One is to bring everybody back at full capacity. And one is sort of a hybrid model. With the information that you just cited about children under the age of 10, which you know, we, we went into a false security and a false sense of security in this country initially when the data came in from China, right, where we heard younger kids are not affected at all. And then we see these rogue cases of like fully systemic disease, like the Kawasaki disease in younger children. There was just a very highly publicized case of a young African-American girl, nine years old, who recently died with no underlying medical conditions. So there are children that are affected by this where the mass majority are not, they're not gonna be in that age range, we do see less disease among this, this demographic. However, these kids can be asymptomatic more than children above the age of 10, and they could potentially be conduits for this disease and pass it along to their parents. So will we see different school districts that only permit the uh, elementary schools to go back? Chris, I think we are gonna see some of those models across certain towns in this country and different states where the elementary school kids will go back the middle school kids will be a question mark and the high schoolers will remain online. But again, every city and every state is going to have a different response to this because we're lacking those universal guidelines. So one town three miles over from a different town may look look a lot different than their neighbors. And yet those are arbitrary defining lines, right, where people cross over quite frequently. Also, in addition, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the studies are pouring in, right? We see data that's coming in. We're just collating that data from the United States where we had different risk factors from vape, vaping to obesity compared to Chinese youth and, you know, kids and young adults in China. And our word numbers are going to look different. So as we're polling all of this data, these are preliminary reports that we're acting on. There's so much data to collate in terms of looking at patterns and generalizations as we move months into this disease and even years, we're still going to be learning stuff about it. So I think this is a big challenge for our educators and it, 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 pains me that the teachers are bearing the brunt of the anxiety and the anger of the American public, whereas I really think, you know, people in charge, especially in the state level, state education level, really needs to to be, you know, go between the anger that they're receiving, because it's not really up to the teachers to safeguard everybody's health. It's it's really up to people in the public health realm and people that are at a state level, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, teachers are doing the best they can. And then before we oh. let you go, just weigh in quickly on um, the update around a possible vaccine. I'm, I've been trying to track that specifically, and I was hearing that, you know, the end of the year, we might begin to get an approval maybe at best. Right. So what we're, we're seeing this lightning speed sort of act that went through the FDA to try to increase the or decrease the amount of time for an FDA approval of a vaccine. We are seeing a huge global effort. I've mentioned this before on the show. There's a global effort to try to find a vaccine um, and to try to make the vaccine efficacious. And of course, we would want the, the pros to completely outweigh the cons and make sure it's a safe vaccine for everybody. And of course, this is another politicized issue in this country. In fact, Chris, there was a WebMD poll today and it said only 40% of people would even consider getting it at the end of 2020. So in order to achieve herd immunity in this country, unless you mandate this vaccine, which is highly unlikely, we won't, we won't achieve that herd immunity of 70% to safeguard everybody's health in this country.
But having said that, there was a stage three of several different vaccines right now going into phase three of clinical trials, and they and it looks good. So, you know, will a vaccine roll out by the end of 2020? Probably, Chris, but I think for widespread distribution in this country, you're you're looking at, you know, 2021 at the earliest. Oh, man, well, make room for me in your bunker, please. <laughs> you're welcome anytime. Thank you, Dr. Jen Wider. Have a beautiful night. Thanks so much for being a part of the Thanks. show again. Coming up next, we're sliding into those DMs. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world and we want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Chris, can you please give some tips on how to discuss open relationships? I've been trying to bring it up to my partner, but I'm a little afraid I'll say the wrong thing. And then I don't know how to react if the answer is no. First off, I want to applaud you for being honest and authentic. We live in a monogamy-centric culture, and we get a lot of problematic messaging that if anyone wants a designer relationship, that there's some lack of love, care, intimacy, or commitment. But in fact, it's an attempt to have more happiness and joy. It's an attempt to be able to make your current primary relationship more longevity-based and successful. We live in a time of designer relationships, and I use that word because every couple should determine for themselves what they need. And that's gonna change over the course of our life. What, make, what makes sense or is workable at one point is not what's workable down the road. And some people wanna think, well, that's what we decided when we met. No, you're allowed to negotiate every contract. You're even allowed to leave a marriage. No one can ever say upon meeting someone, I can promise for decades what I'll need or what I'll want. That's not realistic, that's not healthy. I want people to be in relationships for the length of time that they're serving them. I'm okay with relationships ending, I'm okay with divorce. That's often a sign of health. And I want people to check in, as I've said before, every year and say, how's this past year been? Should we continue on together? What changes should we make? And if not, don't. You know, we have this idea that we're all gonna grow together in the same way at the same time and always be compatible. And that's not true, that's not honest. So a lot of people realize I like what we've created, but I want more sexual diversity or creativity. Or sadly, some couples don't have sex within the first couple dates, and so they make commitments and attach, not knowing if there's sexual chemistry or compatibility. And that becomes a problem, especially down the road. No matter how much you love someone or are attracted to them, that doesn't promise sexual compatibility or chemistry. And so open relationships are great. But I always say it should be done within the context of a relationship that's already healthy and solid, because it's gonna complexify that relationship, your life, because open relationships are about bringing in others. And it doesn't mean polyamory, which means multiple ongoing committed relationships. Uh, open relationship in the way I think you're asking just means can you have sex with other people? So um, you want to make sure your relationship is feeling close and solid and strong. And if it's not, work on that first. That's where you start. And then once that's feeling the case, you can slowly start the conversation. It's not something that you decide on as a one-off. You could say, hey, I've been thinking about open relationships, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And you can keep revisiting it. And they might say at the first, you know, remember you've been sitting with this for a while, your partner hasn't. So this might be something that's really brand new and they might need time. So you have to keep talking about it. And maybe before you even mention an interest in it, just bring up the topic like, hey, what are your thoughts on open relationships? And slowly keep bringing it up. Uh, lots of beautiful books you can read together to help people understand. I also recommend sometimes working with a sex therapist to set, you know, expectations and boundaries. But, you know, it's like anything else, any, any difficult conversation, uh, you start slow, make sure the person's feeling safe, make sure they know that this is a, a conversation for both people to collaboratively weigh in on. It's not a demand. 
Um, and also know that open relationships are something you can realize aren't working and you can choose to close again. Some relationships close during difficult times and then open back up. Um, it can be temporary. It can be something you try once, you know, recollect yourselves and say, how did that feel? How did that work? Because open relationships doesn't mean three ways. It can, but it might mean you go off and have sex on your own without your partner. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, healthy, solid relationships should be able to tolerate that kind of work. Um, so again, make sure your relationship's feeling strong and solid. Uh, bring it up topically. And then at some point, maybe discuss your interest. You can read some books together. Uh, keep dialoguing about it. Talk about what your expectations would be. But again, you might realize that your partner isn't interested or open to something like that. And then you have to kind of decide, what does that mean for you? Is that something you're willing to back away from? Or is that something that's really meaningful and important to you? Some people, sexuality is a part of their human growth. It's where they access that. And some people miss out on that. Because again, when we get into monogamous relationships, our partner's sexual limits become our limits, right? We're limited by whatever they're unwilling to do. And that can stunt our sexual development. It's the only area that gets stunted. Our relationships, in, in theory, if they're healthy, allow development on every other level. We're allowed to go develop other skills, athleticism, friendships, other forms of intimacy, try other restaurants, foods, movies, countries. But sex becomes the one thing that's limited and kept special. And that shouldn't be the only thing you have that's special. If that's heartbreaking when someone says, well, that's the only thing we have that's for ourselves. That's it? Really? Oh my God, you have a lot of work to do then. Just sex? I want people to say, yeah, we have intimacy that's just for the two of us on other levels uh, because it's us. And so it should be bigger and more than just the sex. So weigh in on that. Uh, Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world. We want you to explore with confidence. Question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG page in the story. So weigh in on that. Listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right. And now we're going to talk with Dr. Hillary Goldscher about cancel culture. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thanks for having me. So for those that aren't really familiar with the concept, can you just give them a little bit of a, I guess, the elevator pitch on what cancel culture is? Yes. I mean, it's sort of an evolving concept, isn't it? The idea that when a public persona does or says something that's loathsome or racist or misogynistic or generally abhorrent, that they are canceled by those in their sphere. And whether that means fans or professional affiliates, friends, family members, et cetera, that the obligations, projects, et cetera, that they're affiliated with are no longer supported. They could be fired from their job. They could lose followers. There's sort of a, a group of people, almost a mob that come together to cancel them from the status that they previously enjoyed. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about, it. I like the use of the word mob because I, I'm, I'm working with some people in my practice that are struggling with this and, you know, we're watching the news and that's what I see starting to happen is like this big pile on occurs. And it's almost as though we're trying to remove this person from the, from the planet completely. Um, what are what are you seeing as the issues around cancel culture? You know, I think one of the issues is that, I mean, first of all, for the person that is canceled, it is a highly traumatic experience and can lead to a number of mental health issues. But from a public standpoint, from a macro standpoint, potentially we forego an opportunity to have a more public, more vulnerable, more difficult, more pointed discussion about the issues at hand. So on one hand, if we have something that's so abhorrent, like a Harvey Weinstein situation, perhaps there's no more discussion that needs to be had. It's a zero tolerance situation. But for someone that is identified as having said something previously racist, misogynistic, et cetera, we foreclose an opportunity to talk about it, to, to discuss what happened, to discuss how they arrived at those kind of views, 
why they haven't been challenged before, to do sort of a self-exploration that, one, might deter the cancel, and two, might serve as sort of a public service opportunity for people who hold those same views but don't make them public to look inside themselves, to reconsider, to educate themselves, et cetera. Yeah, and you hit a lot of really important points because I, I, I think in the beginning, my experience was cancel culture. Well, prior to cancel culture, I liked the idea that social media and technology gave people access to companies and celebrities to kind of share their struggles and concerns and people could self-correct. But as you kind of said earlier, it's evolved into this larger, almost mob mentality. And it's not safe, like you said, for people to learn or to grow. So I guess my question, my next question is twofold. One, what is the better perspective for us to have around such a situation? Because again, we don't want to stop the, the growth and the education that can happen, but we don't also want to take people down and create mental health issues. Yes, I, I think if we take people down and again, forego this opportunity for learning or growing, we're sort of feeding the problem with some similar energy, right? I mean, we're trying to stop sort of hatred and loathsome behavior and we're meeting it with a version of hatred and loathsome behavior by just rejecting them entirely. And so I think looking at it as a more nuanced opportunity that if someone does says something, behaves in a way that is offensive as a fan, as a professional affiliate, et cetera, trying to, to pause and learn a bit more about what happened and try to discover whether or not that person at the center of the cancel, so to speak, is open to potentially using this as an educational experience. And when I say open, I don't mean just sort of being contrite as a way to save their job or their status, but really being open and vulnerable and saying, like, I, I am being challenged in a way I never had here before. I'm vulnerable. I'm open. I'm available for education and to use myself as an example. That could be pretty powerful, given what we're trying to do in this country in terms of dismantling uh, racial injustice, to just cancel people who are holding views that many people hold behind doors, perhaps as I was saying before, forecloses an opportunity for people to think differently and challenge themselves in a more open public way. We'll be right back with Dr. Hillary Goldscher talking more about cancel culture. Dr. Hillary Goldscher about cancel culture. And, and let's talk about the fact that, you know, we've all we've all harmed and we all will, will harm again in some capacity. You know, of course, there's different severities to that. And we want to hold the larger injuries to a higher standard. But we've all said things that are, you know, upsetting maybe to someone on a smaller scale. And I'm watching um, some people that are kind of doing that whole splitting where they, they'll like someone and they're a fan of theirs or maybe it's a friend or family member. And the minute they do something that they don't like, they're, they're trying to kind of apply cancel culture on a micro level and, and, and ignore the fact that this person maybe does have some value or maybe there's some way to kind of repair from this. And so I don't like the idea that it's kind of leaking outside of its original, I guess, purpose or center point. This is a paradigm we do not want to adopt in our personal lives, yeah. right? I mean, the, the idea that someone could feel betrayed, wronged, hurt, angry, et cetera, and that that could lead to someone sort of just uh, pushing them out of their lives is a really dangerous idea. All of us, as you indicated, have moments where we do the wrong thing. And to not allow for people to show new patterns of behavior, to make up for actions that don't resonate, to right the wrongs of their actions really 
can be damaging to intimate relationships. So I, I think it's a it's a really dangerous pattern that we we don't want to follow in our personal lives. Yeah, it would hurt my heart if people didn't feel safe saying like, hey, Chris, you know, you said something the other day. It's still in my mind. It kind of hurt my feelings. Can we talk about it? Like, I would be so disheartened to have that removed from our like relational skill set. But let's talk about the, the, the deep diving where I've seen some people pull out quotes uh, from celebrities from 10 years ago five years ago what are your thoughts about holding people accountable to something they did that far back because you know none of us are born quote-unquote woke we all had to go through a journey um we all had to have things pointed out to us we all had to learn so what are your thoughts on the deep diving yeah i mean i think this is an example where the paradigm gets stretched too far right i mean i i think it's it is interesting information potentially that some favorite celebrity or public figure endorsed that kind of speak or said something offensive in the past. And perhaps if it just created an opportunity to convert for conversation, for dialogue, that could be interesting, right? And so someone could have an opportunity to say like, right, back a decade ago, I, I didn't hold these values. I wasn't educated enough. I wasn't challenging myself. I didn't have compassion. I'm humiliated. I'm embarrassed. I do better now, and I, I, I want to be a, a vehicle of education. So if it were that kind of thing, that might be interesting and perhaps even useful. But you're right. I mean, if all of us got sort of evaluated on our behavior professionally and personally 10 years ago, I think we'd all have a lot of fouls. So. <laughs> God bless what I was up to 10 years ago. I mean, I never did anything egregious. I always was pretty ethical and integrity-based, but I'm sure I had a few zingers every now and then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's notable. I think many of us could say that no matter how far, far back in our feed that you went, you wouldn't find a racist comment, for example. So it is, it is, as I said, perhaps interesting information that if it comes out publicly, the person at the center of it can use it as an opportunity to talk about what we're talking about, to say, right, 10 years ago, I was different. I've changed. Here's how. And here's how I continue to challenge myself to evolve and grow, especially in today's culture. Yeah, and that's why I'm trying to advocate for people. If you have direct access to the person, reach out one-on-one, -on -one, see if you can have a moment with them. They'll feel maybe less attacked. They'll be more open. Maybe even try emailing the celebrity or DMing them saying like, hey, as a, whatever my example is, a larger bodied individual, some of your comments feel a little fat phobic. Here's why it's hurtful to me and my community. I think people might be amenable to that versus just like tweeting it out and getting a pile on. Do you agree? We miss an absolute opportunity for dialogue in in the former, in the latter example, right? There's there's no opportunity for a real discourse to have happen and for like a more human interaction for someone to say like, I'm not sure if you know, but the comments that you made hurt me and uh, I want to support you, but this felt, you know, sort of disorienting and, and disenfranchising and I, I want you to be aware of this. And maybe the person who's at the recipient of that information is open and vulnerable and can hear that and some healing can actually happen. And we really just foreclose an opportunity for any of that dialogue and any of that healing when this cancel culture thing is applied so generally. Yeah, and before we let you go, I want to kind of flip it because um, I had this happen to me personally where I, I, had, I, I misused a word and it wasn't even a very triggering word and someone claimed that I was erasing the legacy of the word because I conjugated it wrong. And it was this powerful moment where I thought, wow, we're getting a little too sensitive and we're a little too comfortable jumping in on things. And so it almost felt like I was getting gaslighted by it, right? So mm -hmm. what, are you, what are your thoughts on people trying to protect or defend themselves when they feel as though the call out isn't even warranted or rooted in anything meaningful? 
I think the key is while difficult staying calm and grounded and being able to say very directly and pointedly, but clearly that like, that wasn't my intention. That wasn't what was happening here. So sorry if it felt differently to you and to sort of leave it there to not get in a defensive dialogue around it to not let it escalate and if the person continues to hold a view that is outside of the one that you're sure of that you hold to sort of put an end to the conversation I'm so sorry you felt that way and to kind of move along because I think what's happening on a micro level on a macro level are these little moments can get blown up and blown up and blown up and the aggression that comes along with it, the kind of self-righteousness can be really damaging. So I think kind of stating your truth and moving along if you can't find sort of a, a, a path towards understanding each other is best in these cases, as hard as that is, because it's really painful to be mis misunderstood in that way. That's right. Dr. Hillary Goldshire, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can catch more of Dr. Jen Wider and Dr. Hillary Goldcher on I'm Listening, our mental health show that airs every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time for Question of the Night. A new poll asked, do you think there should be a second shutdown? Oh, 72% <laughs> said yes. Wow, now that's shocking because I'm seeing a lot of people that are acting like the pandemic is completely over. So 72% of people uh, that were in this poll said that a second shutdown is necessary. Fascinating. Again, you know, there's a lot of studies talking about how we don't want to shame anyone who is not necessarily following the prescribed protocol for flattening and ending the transmission of COVID. And I appreciate that. And I think that shaming is never, you know, a, a really helpful psychological tool. But I, I do want to say that we still should be, you know, impacting and influencing those around us and maybe lovingly pointing out, you know, ways that they're impacting others with their decision making. Because I know that people still want to be dating, having sex, seeing their friends. It's my birthday. Oh, I still want to get married. And it's like, yeah, I get it. But there's a larger impact that your behavior is having. And so please be more thoughtful. So, yeah, make sure those around you are following the rules, especially if you're, you know, directly impacted. But look, the indirect impact is gigantic. So anyway, I was really surprised to hear that. The question of the night, though, is if you were in charge of making rules for a second shutdown, <laughs> what would be your first move? I like this one. First person said, create blanket rules for every single state based on CDC recommendations. Ah, yes, the Center for Disease Control. The organization who is being basically hijacked by the Trump administration, and they're wanting all data and stats reported directly to the White House so they can manipulate and control the information, which is basically, uh, you know, our fascist president just, you know, being more of a dictator. So heartbreaking. Good luck with that one. But I appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> if there's a second shutdown, that's never going to happen. And, you know, it's become such a polarized political issue where a lot of Republican states are denying what's going on and not willing to wear masks. More Democratic progressive states are all on board and wearing them. It's heartbreaking. So I can't imagine all the governors and mayors getting on board. We're seeing that battle happening right now just in Atlanta with the mayor. Um, Bottoms, Keisha Bottoms, and the governor's trying to get into a legal battle with her. She's trying to say, look, we got to wear masks to take care of everything. Governor's pushing back on that. And, you know, God bless Trump. Somebody else said, uh, question tonight, if you were in charge of making rules for a second shutdown, what would be your first move? Someone else said, announce it, giving specific dates and direction. Ah, yes, that would also be helpful. You'd think that'd be a no-brainer. But again, thus far, looking at how it's been handled, it's been handled horribly. You know, we got Cuomo, governor of New York, and uh, Newsom in California. And I think they're both handling it as best 
best as they can. They're they're being awesome. We're really disappointed in a lot of other locations where they're just not worrying about the impact. They're opening schools, um, not mandating mask wearing. It's quite heartbreaking. Someone else said checkpoints to ensure safety and tracing records. I love that tracing, being able to give people a heads up. Look, you've come in contact with someone. Please quarantine. Please go get tested. That's an important part of flattening this because you know even once a vaccine is ready, it has to be widely uh, utilized and distributed. And even though and even then we have to get people to you know be willing to taking a vaccine. So we're looking deep into next year at some point with that bad boy. Question of the night: If you're in charge of making rules for a second shutdown, what would be your first move someone else said wear a mask and take vitamins you think again that that would be a no-brainer if we were all taking our immunity boosting vitamins not that that's going to necessarily rule out a COVID infection but it's going to help us better battle it and prevent other things and wearing a mask we know that if everyone wore a mask for at least two weeks we could definitely kind of combat this better someone else said stay the f home unless it's essential again i agree your birthday is not essential your wedding is not essential and a lot of these jobs are not essential sorry like you you can handle a year going by without you know seeing your posse et cetera et cetera. It's heartbreaking again seeing the way people are handling this. Someone else said uh, question that if you were in charge of making rules for a second shutdown, what would be your first move? Track and trace apps and more testing. I agree with that. But again, the testing means people have to follow the rules. I was looking at a study. And it was talking about people disclosing symptoms and the bulk of people weren't willing to disclose symptoms while participating in hookup culture. That is horrifying to me because you are putting someone else at risk. That is not informed consent. Um, Someone else said, keep America open. Sick and vulnerable people stay home and use delivery and curbside services. Yes, but it's about identifying the sick and vulnerable people, making it so that they can stay home. Um, Someone else said, build a wall around everyone in Huntington Beach. (laughs) Yes, because that's an area for those that aren't familiar in California where everyone's a little entitled, a little too Republican, and they're not willing to participate in social distancing. They are getting together in huge amounts on the on the beaches and not wearing masks. I appreciate the humor in that one. Big old wall around Huntington Beach. God bless. Someone else said pay people to stay home. Yep, I think that's what's going to have to come down to. Government has to pay people so that they can comfortably stay home. People are worrying about paying their rent, their mortgage, food. Uh, you have to pay people. I agree. Someone else said monthly stimulus money for citizens and bailing out the small businesses. I'm on board for that. Someone else said everyone needs to stay home. Only hospitals should be open. It worked in other countries. I agree. Get your groceries delivered or go to the grocery store only. Everything else shut down. Um, that's all we really need. Someone else said shut down everything. Citations for those who still gather. I'm down for that one. Citations for anyone who's still gathering in groups. Y'all know better. Someone else said cancel all bills. Definitely here for that one. Someone else said $100 ticket for not wearing a mask in public places, especially parks and beaches. And finally, someone said ban evictions. Yeah, I know. Again, people struggling to get their basic needs met. That's what I think is pushing some people to uh, leave their homes when they're not feeling comfortable. It's not safe. All right, thanks to those that participated. Question of the Night is always up on our Loveline IG page. And the stories coming up next, we're going to slide into those DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding in the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sexy world. We want you to explore with confidence. Our DMs come from our Loveline page. If you got a thought, question, Drop on in there. We do it anonymously, confidentially. Um, always appreciate everyone's vulnerability. Here we go. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I have three kids, all under 10. Two different dads. Before the coronavirus hit, they were asking to have a big party with all their families under one roof. The answer is absolutely not. <laughs> but I couldn't tell them that. 
Thankfully, the coronavirus is an easy excuse, but I've been thinking, maybe it is a good idea. I'm just afraid of the consequences. Um, what would the consequences be? <laughs> I'm assuming everyone's a mature adult, all's well. You, when you have a child with someone, they are in your life forever. The parent, possibly. That's why I love psychology and relationality. We can attach to anything. Anything can have value meaning to us, right? When I do grief and loss work, people bring in all sorts of things. You know, um, I always talk about how I, I miss the gym. It's a meditative place for me. I miss seeing people. I miss throwing out weights, putting my music on, checking out for a while, getting out of the house. People would be like, oh, you missed the gym. What a bizarre thing. No, not for me. And again, mental health is being authentic and honest and being where we are. So let's not pathologize whatever has meaning and value to us. I mean, people are heartbroken when musicians pass away or actors or athletes that they've never met, never seen, and never will, right? Because again, we can symbolically have relationships with people and they can be in our lives for a long time and they can bring a lot of meaning to us. They can be role models. Um, and that's the beautiful part of humanity. It's empathy, right? I want us to care more about others and those around us. And that's that's an extension of that. So feel sad that you missed out on things that things are postponed or closed. You know, there's a lot of people grieving that. Their world, our world, our lives have shrunk, you know? And that's why it's so hard to see people out there living an expansive life because they're part of why our life has been shrunk and continues to be, you know? And it's hard to see that. But I have an attachment to a lot of different things in my life. And I think that's beautiful. Um, that, that, um, extension of connection and, and empathy. So don't ever shame that. Don't ever let people shame that in you. Um, it is interesting to see though, again, when we talk about grief and loss, we talked about this on another episode, people really have these problematic ideas of like what you're allowed to feel sad about and for how long. And we'll say to people, Oh, it'll be fine. Get over it or toughen up. We'll get a new, we'll get a new pet. And it's like, why can't we carry it with us? You know, that's real. Carry it with you. Um, we're allowed to, we can add to, right? There's not, love is not a non-renewable resource that if we're staying connected to past things, we don't have availability for others. And that's why, again, I love people being friends with exes. It didn't work out romantically or sexually, but they're still in our lives and we still get to take that forward. And I say this all the time. I have so much love for all of my exes and I hope to always have that. And anyone new entering my life romantically needs to know that they're a part of my life. They always will be and I'll always be there for them. And that should not be a threat, right? And that's why when the DM came in about, having two different baby fathers at the same party. Yeah, that's beautiful. We should all know each other. Let's be more community-based and collectivity-based. We're all mature adults. And if not, work on doing that, work on creating that, work on demanding that, you know? All right, y'all, Slime the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world. We want you to explore the confidence. That's our show. Check out my live stream show. I'm listening live. That's every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on all the radio.com handles. That's their Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Celebrities and experts talking about the impacts and intersections of COVID and mental health. And Loveline will be back on Monday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. But you can check out all past episodes at weirdchannelq.com and radio.com. Make sure this weekend you center self-care joy and some pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with me. You guys have a beautiful weekend, beautiful rest of your week. See you on Monday.